0: Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmanuel.org. If you are enjoying these studies, help us get the message out and share them with your friends. Remember to support Beth Emanuel with your tithes and offerings by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmanuel.org. So we're going to be learning Isaiah, particular approach to Isaiah. The idea here is that we'll look at Isaiah through the writers of the New Testament rather than just take Isaiah head on. It seemed a little formidable to me to take Isaiah head on. It's 66 chapters, and it's dense political material, mostly political. Well, there's some spiritual stuff there, too. But there's a lot of politics going on. Uh, so that just seemed like uh, a, a bit much. So instead, I thought, well, let's, what if we just looked at the passages of Isaiah that are quoted in the New Testament? Well, it turns out that there's 80 citations to Isaiah in the New Testament. 80 of them, like either direct citations or allusions, and I believe that number is conservative. I think there's more than that, especially when we get to Isaiah 53. Uh, there's, it seems to me, like there's uh, there's hints and allusions to Isaiah 53 all over the epistles and the gospels. Uh, so, of these 85, that's 85 quotations or direct allusions, several of them are. Of course, referencing the same passage, in, but in fact, there's 65 unique passages. If we were to cover this material, what did I say? Ten weeks or 12 weeks? Well, 12, oh, good, because I was going to say if we have to do it in 10 weeks, we got to do six and a half of these a night, right? But 12, we got forever. Um, 12 weeks. I mean, who goes to a class for 12 weeks? No one. Well, look, okay, we'll see anyway so it's a lot of material that's the point oh it's a lot of material the apostles loved the book of isaiah our master loved the book of isaiah they lived in the book of isaiah they read the book of isaiah the way that most people read horoscopes in the newspaper to figure out what their day was going to be like when they get up in the morning i don't mean that literally but i mean that's how invested they were in the book of isaiah they they believed the apostles believed the book of isaiah was in some ways about them and their generation well after all check out isaiah 53 that happened to them in their generation and so they were able to read their own story into the book of isaiah and especially the story of yeshua and the story of the master in the book of isaiah so this is why they're in there all the time oh and then there's isaiah you Isaiah 40 through 66. First thing we want to learn about Isaiah, this isn't in the notes. First thing we want to learn about Isaiah is that Isaiah consists of two separate works. There's two separate books of Isaiah in the book of Isaiah. And these two separate books of Isaiah consist of many different visions and prophecies and oracles of Isaiah that have been stitched together. Okay, the first book of Isaiah. Runs from Isaiah chapter 1 through 39. The second book of Isaiah runs from Isaiah 40 to the end, the 66. Most scholars believe that these two books are written by two different prophets. Two different guys. We refer to Isaiah and Deutero-Isaiah. Isaiah Isaiah being 1 through 39. And Deutero-Isaiah, second Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 why do they believe this well there's um, something and maybe uh the writing style is a little different uh in the latter book and uh, that sort of thing i'm not exactly sure uh, but primarily because i think the reason is because the isaiah 40 through 66 already assumes a state of exile exists and it's all about the redemption Whereas Isaiah 1 through 39 is prophesying the exile and warning about the coming exile, with occasional allusions also to the coming redemption. Chapters 40 through 66, it sounds like we're already in exile and we're looking forward to the salvation of God to come and rescue his people from this fallen state. All right, so Berkeley, since Isaiah didn't live into the days of the exile of of the king in Judah. However, he did live in the days of the exile of the northern kingdom. You realize we have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, right? Does everybody know that? If you don't know that, uh, you don't have to raise your hand. Uh, But um, it's important for you to know that the kingdom of Israel split after the days of king solomon into a northern confederation or actually it's it's not a confederation it's a kingdom but a confederation of tribes under a single king and a southern confederation and the northern confederation is called ephraim uh, named after the leading tribe ephraim also called israel the southern kingdom is called judah and uh that's after the leading tribe of the southern kingdom and uh so the northern kingdom is uh, broke off from the house of David and um, are more or less living in rebellion to the house of David and the temple. And um, because of that, they have, their, they have the more interesting history, I suppose, uh, and the more interesting prophets like Elijah and Elisha, uh, whereas the southern kingdom is under the monarchy of the house of David. So that's clear to everyone. If I say Ephraim, which kingdom am I referring to? The north. Good. All right. And if I say Judah, I'm referring to the south. Good. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, it's just some things we need to lay down, some things we need to establish. Because what we are going to be doing is we are going to be looking as we in Calvin's practice. We're going to be starting um, in Isaiah 6, but we'll be um, looking at the... Here's my plan. I'll give you the plan. The plan is First, we'll look at the prophecy as it appears in the book of Isaiah and determine its historical context and uh, try to understand it as it was supposed to be understood by Isaiah and his original readers or hearers, more likely, in that day. Okay? Then, after we've established that, then we'll go look at it through the eyes of the apostles and say, ah, yes, but how did the apostles read this? How did the apostles understand this? And what we'll find is that there's often two very different meanings for text which should be okay with you by this quote. If you've been studying in Messianic Judaism for a while, it should be okay with you know, understanding that there's more than one way to read the Bible. I want to introduce you to King Uzziah, the leper king. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 26. and Here's our historical context for the book of Isaiah And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. So he's 16 years old when he becomes king. It's every teenage boy's dream. He built Elot, that's Elot down on the Red Sea, and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uh, Uzziah, was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Jechiliah of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah done. So he's a good king. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Now, when he went out and warred against the Philistines, he broke down the wall of Gath, and the wall of, of Yavne, and the wall of Ashdod, and he built the cities in the area of Ashdod among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines. And against the Arabians who lived in Gurbal, and against the Neonites. So what you're seeing here, I hope you're following me here, Uzziah is a good king, and not only is he a good king, he's a successful king, and Hashem is with him. Hashem is blessing him. He, he uh, beat the Ammonites, he got, they gave tribute to him, uh, he extended the border, uh, his fame extended to the border of Egypt. So it's kind of like uh, Israel after the Six-Day War, where their fame extended to the border of Egypt, right? And through the Sinai. Uh, Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the quarter gate, and the valley gate, and the quarter buttress, and fortified them. He built towers, towers in the wilderness, He hewned out cisterns, for he had much livestock The land and in the plain. He also had plowmen, vine dressers, in the hill country, and fertile fields, for he loved the soil. You're getting a picture of the kingdom here with the righteous king, the godly king, and, and God's blessing of the people through him. Moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle which entered combat by divisions. It was awesome. Uh, there were a whole bunch of people. And then it says in verse 14, Moreover, Uzziah prepared for the army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, sling stones. And in Jerusalem, he made engines of war. What are engines of war? These like catapults and ballistas and things like that. Uh invented by skillful men to be on towers and corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence his fame spread afar, and he was marvelously helped until he was strong. He's marvelously helped. I mean Shem was helping him. And this is this he's a godly king on the throne of David. He's the son of David, you know? He's well not the I mean he's a Descendant of David. But he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a picture of the Messiah, of, of the righteous Messiah, ruling here in Jerusalem. Wow. And he did right in the eyes of the Lord until he became proud. And it says in verse 16, when he became strong and his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. But what did he do? Unlike other kings who maybe took extra wives, pagan wives, and built temples for their gods or, or built uh, high places or something like that, he decided, you know, I'm the king. I should be able to burn incense to Hashem. Right, just like, like Nadab and Abihu, Right. And so he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah, the priest, by the way, Azariah is also Uzziah's name. That's another name for Uzziah. Uzziah has two names, Uzziah and Azariah. Just point of interest. Well, it's just like some guys are, you meet two guys and they're both named Bob. Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of times one of them has another name, like Jim Bob. I wish they'd just seen it for I know. Switches back and forth quite a bit. <laughs> it's Confusing. You're right. So anyway, this is Azariah the priest. He must be the high priest. He entered after him and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, it's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but to the priests. Get out of the sanctuary. And they tried to chase him out. They, and they're, they're trying to chase him out, but is angry. He doesn't want to go. He's like, who do you think you are? I'm the king. And just then, boom, leprosy broke out on him. And uh, wow, so Azariah, and the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous. And so, what did they They had to rush him out of the temple because he's unclean. As a leper, he's communicating ritual impurity, as we know from the Torah. And so, it says in verse 21 King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house. And being a leper, he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham. His son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. It's a co-regency. Wow. Something that throws off chronologies of the kings uh, is that, uh, the theory that it, it, it appears that Jotham becomes king after Uzziah dies, but he actually his reign starts before Uzziah's death. Anyway, you're not interested in that. Um, now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first to the last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, has written about. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. Where? Where has the prophet Isaiah written? Did you see, I mean, again, the rest of the Acts of Isaiah. normally it says, when it says the rest of the Acts of the King, it says, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings or something like that? But in this case it says, now the rest of the Acts of Uzziah, first to the last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, has written. So here's another book of Isaiah. This one, La the book of Uzziah. Wouldn't that be nice? Apparently, Isaiah was impressed with King Uzziah and wrote a biography of King Uzziah. He actually was the chronicler of King Uzziah. This indicates that Isaiah served high up in the court of the king. Isaiah was a kinsman to King Uzziah. Isaiah was a kinsman to the kings in that he, too, descended from David. The Talmud says that Isaiah's father, Amos, was the brother of Amaziah, king of Jerusalem before Uzziah. If so, Isaiah was a member of the loyal household. And what would that make him to Uzziah? His cousin or his nephew? cousin if he's cousin he's Uzziah's cousin all right so that's Uzziah that's the story I needed to tell you about Uzziah the leper meanwhile up in the north in Ephraim okay to get that story please turn over to 2nd Kings 15 down in the south we have the righteous king Uzziah not so up in Ephraim and in Samaria. Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the north. So Samaria is to Ephraim what Jerusalem is to Judah. Okay? Uh, we had several different capitals uh, throughout, but at this point it's Samaria, beginning in verse 23. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah. Oh, there it is. That's where Azariah, that's Mosiah right there. If you're the kind of person who writes in your Bible, you might want to put a little note there that says Uzziah. Okay. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, son of Menachem, Menachem, uh, Pekahiah, Pekahiah. I looked looked at the Hebrew on that. It's Pekahiah, which means Hashem will open. Hashem will open, and it's Pekah is like eyes. Hashem will open eyes. Um, Pekah. Pe- Pechakia, son of Menachem, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. So he kept the golden calves at Dan and Bethel going. Uh, then what happened? This guy, Pekak, whose name is, is, very, is, is very close. It's almost the exact same name. How's that for confusing? You have to be able to distinguish between between Pekakia and Peccat, King Pekakia and Pakak. So Pakak comes and what does he do? He assassinates Pekakia. Got it? Well, I know we can make a tongue twister. Then Pakak, son of Ramalia, his officer cons- conspired against him and struck him in Samaria in the castle of the king's house with Argob and Arye and and with him were 50 men of the Gileadites, and he killed him, and he became king in his place. This is a coup. It's, it's a, a revolution. Now, the rest of the acts of Pekachia and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the uh, Chronicles of the Kings, right? Okay, so this is what's going on up north in the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah. This isn't is last year, right? Uh, 52nd year of Uzziah, king of Judah. Hekak, son of Ramaliah, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 20 years. So what does that tell you? It tells you that this assassination took place in the same year that Azariah died or King Uzziah died. What? What? Am, maybe you think, what is he doing? And what are we talking about? Do you remember how Isaiah six begins? Does anyone remember the first words of Isaiah six? Yeah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I'm showing you the year that King Uzziah died. All huh? right. Does that make sense now? Okay. Good. In the fifty-second year of Azariah, the king of Judah, Pekah, son of Ramalia, became king over Israel and Samaria. He reigned twenty years. He did evil, uh, just like Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And now, headline news. This is a this is a, you ever remember on Sesame Street oh, uh, when they would do the breaking news. Remember that? Okay. This is breaking news. I mean, this is screening headline. This is like where they, you know, where where uh the newspaper comes out and it says in like a point text, war, you know, or war declared or something like that. That's what you've got right here. In the days of Tekak, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ion and abel Betmacha, and Janoah and Kedesh and Chatzor and Gilead and Galilee and all the land of Naphtali. And he carried them captive. To Assyria, that's pretty much everything he's got. You know your geography; that's pretty much the whole kingdom. Tiglath-Pileser comes in. He's he's the he's the you know this the king of Assyria. He's a king, and Assyria is the big empire right now. They're the big player on the world scene. What are they doing? What's he care? What's he got? What's he got against the Jews? Huh? <laughs> wow what's anyone got against the Jews? but actually he's more interested in controlling this valuable strategic strip of land that's what he's interested in so he he what he does is he grabs up all the important trade routes through the land so um, anyway uh and hoshea the son of elah made a conspiracy against pika of uh, begin the son of Ramalia, and struck him and put him to death and became king in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, son of Uzziah. Okay, so that's the story. I just wanted to show you a little bit. Now, this is because this sets up for us perfectly the political climate, the climate that the book of Isaiah is dealing. We won't look at it this week, but if you remember that name, Pekah, the son of Ramallah, it's going to be relevant next week when we study the passage that says the virgin shall be with child. Kita, son of Armal, the Okay, now we're ready to learn Isaiah. Ready to learn Isaiah. Isaiah chapter one begins with these words The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So that's a long run. That's about a fifty year run for for these prophecies that he's going he's gonna give us. But we know that he, he begins, his visions begin in the year that Isaiah died. Well, you might not realize that because it's out of order. It's actually Isaiah 6. But Isaiah 6 is the beginning of the book. Uh, yeah, Isaiah 6, it is, well, it's the beginning of the story of Isaiah's prophecies. That's his commissioning. I mean, he, didn't, he didn't prophesy. He wasn't known as a prophet and had prophesied chapters 1 through 5 already and then got around to prophesying Isaiah. And then he had this vision in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is his commissioning. Is this something that people don't realize about the scrolls of the prophets. They're not in chronological order. It's very clear in Jeremiah. Ezekiel's not so much an issue. Ezekiel's pretty good. He bumps around a little bit. But he tells you. He always tells him in Ezekiel what the date is of the prophecy. So it's easy to put in order. Jeremiah's a moth. Just a mess. In fact, there's more than one version of how it goes together. When we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was in a different order. <laughs> you know? The chapters are in a different order. So, yeah. Um. Yeah, Jeremiah sometimes repeats material. You ever reading Jeremiah? It's like, did not you just read that? <laughs> I was like, I mean, it's needed it in the editor. Most of these guys needed in the editor. I don't think the position existed yet. The book of Isaiah begins in chapter six. Here it is. Yesir. In the year of King Uzziah's death. Doesn't mean it doesn't mean the king's already dead. The king's not already dead. It's the year that he died. So it's prior to his death. So. What he's about to describe is something prior to the death of the king, and just prior to the assassination of Pekahiah uh, by the Khan. So, in the in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. So, this vision, I it doesn't say so and he doesn't say where he's having the vision, but I assume that he is in the temple. His entire book is in and around Jerusalem. I assume that he is in the temple when he has this vision. It's the place you normally would have a vision. This is where the prophets see visions, is. that's where Hashem is, and is where he communicates. And so he sees a vision, I'm assuming, he's in the temple, and he sees a vision of Hashem in the heavenly temple above, because the two temples correspond to one another. And so in his vision, he sees the train of his robe filling the temple and seraphim stood above him. Seraph means, that's from the burn. verb seraph, to burn, seraphim means burning ones, right? We get a little description, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. This is kind of hard to picture. The, the wings that cover the, a person's feet or an angel's feet. But this is the Hebrew idiom. To cover your feet is to cover your nakedness. To say he covered his feet means that he, with two wings, the seraphim, the seraphim wraps two wings around itself like, like a robe. All right? And uh, what were the other four wings doing? Oh, two wings. With two wings, he has two wings crossed like this covering his face because he's in the presence of the Shem. He can't look on, on the face of his Shem. And, uh, and with the other two wings, he's got to stay aloft because <laughs> he's flying with the other, the other two wings are, are actually in use. These seraphim that are hovering about the throne in this position, in seraphim, but burning one, you kind of picture like a, a being made of fire, you know, an elemental being of fire, right? It says, and one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so this is the kedusha that we use in our liturgy uh, every day. This is appears in the liturgy every day and you say and I think this is universal. Everybody does this. Holy, 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 holy. You hear out in the middle of church, if church, you hear that, you go to synagogue. We say kadosh, 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 but the exact same thing. Why do we repeat this? The idea is that we're joining the celestial worship service. And so uh, our liturgy makes that really explicit about the seraphim and the me, you know, receiving permission one from another and, and that sort of thing, that we're joining with them in their worship of God. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Wow. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The sages say, you know, that Isaiah gets in trouble for saying this. That says, okay. Hashem says, in the Midrash, not real, but in the Midrash, Hashem says, all right, it's one thing for you to say that you're a man of unclean lips, but to say that you live among a people of unclean lips, Now, now you're talking about my people. That's Lashonara. You really are a man of unclean lips. So he has... He has to burn with the coal. <laughs> All right, that's that's not really what's what's going on here. I think it's just, uh, what are, he, by saying these words, what we're really hearing is, I am not fit to be a prophet. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among the people of unclean lips. I'm not, I'm not your guy, which is a, nece- a, nece- a necessary thing that every prophet has to do. He has to go through this objection to why he's not the right guy, you yep. know, starting with Moses, all the prophets. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. This is why I, I'm undone. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with... T- what's, what's weird about that? A fiery angel, that a, a being that's made of fire, has to use tongs, and then he puts it in his hand, <laughs> in his hand, I don't know. Let's have something. <laughs> well, anyway, I won't worry about that. But uh, he, he, he flies and he touches his coal to Ivan's lips, which sounds painful. And when it says the altar, we should be picturing the, altar, uh, the the altar of the heavenly temple, don't you think? And then Isaiah says, And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away, your sin is forgiven. This scene where Isaiah objected, he said, I'm not fit to be a prophet, I'm a man of unclean lips. He touches him with the coal. We should be correlating this with other prophetic commissioning scenes. With Ezekiel, a hand reached out and handed him a scroll and said, eat it. Right? And so Ezekiel ate the scroll and and with what was it with jeremiah what was jeremiah's thing does anybody remember i'm gonna look jeremiah 1 9 this is a classic prophetic commissioning is what's going on here jeremiah chapter 1 verse 9 uh then the lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth and the lord said to me behold i have put my words in your mouth see i have appointed you this day with ezekiel you get the same thing he says i've now you're going to speak for me. And this is what's going on here. He touches him with the coal. He says, your sins are forgiven. The point is that now uh, I've sanctified you to be my spokesman, to be my prophet. He says, uh, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? See, now we're into the commissioning immediately. Who shall I send? Ooh, I wonder if we're... Isaiah's the only guy in the room. Yeah. Uh, oh. Who oh, will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, He send me. He said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive, keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like the terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. All right, that's as far as we're going to go. I've always had a little trouble with this. I mean, think about this. Hashem raises up a prophet, and he says, I'm sending you to go out and harden everybody's hearts, speaking such a way that they won't understand, close their eyes, blind them, deafen their ears, harden their hearts. I'm guessing, how long you want this to go on? Hashem says, until they're utterly destroyed. I think John Calvin had no problem with that particular reading of the passage, but I don't think that's what's going on. It's not a matter of divine cunning. Instead, if we look at the other, the, the other commissioning scenes, the commissioning of Ezekiel, the commissioning of Jeremiah, we see the same thing, and he's expressed in different ways. As soon as he commissioned Ezekiel, he says, something you got to know, these people are not going to listen to you. They are stiff-necked, and they will not listen to you. Then he says the same thing in Jeremiah, exact same thing. He commissions them. He says, don't be afraid of them. They're not going to listen to you. They won't listen to a word you say, but you say what I tell you to say and do not be afraid of them. That's exactly what's happening here. In fact, we could even translate it a little differently. Keep on listening. Go tell these people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Uh, That's a vav there. It has no sense of adversity. Like, keep on listening and do not perceive. Keep on look, list, looking and do not understand. I would read it this way, if I was to uh, paraphrase my Targum on it. You keep on listening, but you don't perceive. You keep on looking, but you don't understand. Your hearts have become insensitive, your ears dull, your eyes dim. The point of the passage, and I feel confident about this, the point of the passage is not for Isaiah to confuse the people so they don't repent. That makes no sense anyway. Do you want to serve a God who sends a prophet to confuse you so that you don't repent? Probably not. I'd labeled this question divine cunning or divine frustration. And I think what we have here is a, an example of Hashem expressing divine frustration. See, Go prophesy to these people they're not going to listen. Their ears are going to be shut. Their hearts are going to be hard. It's gonna bounce off your words. I mean, put it in modern vernacular, your words are gonna bounce off them. In one ear, out the other. He who has ears, let him hear. Yeah. What would be the purpose of the prophecy if the point if the if the goal was to, to harden the people, to harden the hearts? The purpose of the prophecy is not to confuse, harden, blind, deafen the people. That is the result that Hashem predicts. He's saying, this is what's going to happen by, as a result, you know, as in the end result of your prophesying. Uh, but that doesn't excuse him that, you know, just because God knows the future doesn't excuse him from going through the motions with us. A revelation is still going to flow. Some people are going to repent. Come to the end of this, it says a remnant will survive. In Judaism, there's always a choice. There's always free choice in Judaism. If there was a free choice, it wouldn't make sense for I've to punish us so much. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I mean, what, how, how does that... We, we're not going to go down that path. But there's still a free choice for the people. This is rhetorical. Here's our biggest problem with understanding the prophets. Our biggest problem with understanding the prophets. They are way, way, way more literate than we are. And, and by, by literate, I mean like really illiterate like able to work in metaphors and symbolism and manipulate language and enjoy poetry and speak in I mean, poetic figures and this sort of whole, loses us very quickly. That's a big problem uh, for understanding the prophet. I find terribly terrible tedious. Is it not tedious to read the prophets? Actually, it's terrible tedious. Is it? What? Where's the action here? I don't know. Um, it's hard to read. I mean... It's very difficult material because it's poetry. Who reads poetry? Does anybody read poetry? You know, I was I, when I was in college. I, I was I wanted to be a poet. That was like I thought oh, I would be a poet. You know, so I was a literature major and that sort of thing. And um, you know, at a certain point, I realized nobody read this except for other people who want to be a poet. <laughs> Poets read poetry. Nobody else reads poetry. Well, that's not true. That's not that is not true. What? Uh, trees, people who like riddles, like football.: Well, so okay, I mean that's the one place in our society where poetry still exists: is song lyrics. The Hallmark, of I a lot of money. That's real. No, but it wasn't like that, you know. At the time Isaiah's writing, Homer is also writing. You know, this is the ancient world was a, into epic poems. It's, it was a different, it was a different thing, and to be a poet in the ancient world was like the classiest thing you could be to be that wordsmith. That that's the king needing him there, you know, to be his his guy, say that stuff. He <laughs> <laughs> Damn. So that's that's job. that's what Jeremiah's job was. Jeremiah is to Josiah what Isaiah was to Uzziah. How's that? Now to the New Testament. Okay, Matthew thirty this is in the in the passage that Yeshua is giving us his parables. Uh, he's laying down these parables, and the disciples come to him and they say, why do you speak to people in parables? Lord? And I'll start in verse 11. It says, well, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. What are the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven? It's the mysteries of the messianic era. To you it's been given to no, know, uh, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, Whoever will have, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, and they do not understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. But truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We find a parallel to this in in both in in Mark and Luke. First up, conventional interpretation. The disciples come to Yeshua. They say, why do you speak to the people in parables? He says, well, the secrets are just for you. We got to keep these people out from knowing the real stuff I'm teaching. So, um... I speak to them in parables because it's just like Isaiah says about them, you know, keep, we want to blind them, we want to deafen them, are going to harden their hearts. Otherwise, you know what might happen? They might see and understand and turn and repent and, and then I would heal them. I want that. So I speak to them in parables to keep them completely in the dark. But bless your eyes because they see in your ears because they hear. That's conventional interpretation. So the understanding, according to the conventional interpretation of this passage, is that the parables are all spoken in order to, uh, like riddles, they're riddles. They're riddles that are meant to befuddle people and, and to confuse people. Which is exactly the opposite of how the parable functions in Judaism. All the parables in the Talmud. Every time a parable is used, it's used to illustrate a point in order to make it clearer. And this is the same thing, this is the same thing is true in the Gospels. Meshua uses the parables to illustrate a point, to make his point clearer so that people can understand what he is saying with better comprehension. And that's the meaning, of that. that's, that's, that's how parables work. Very early on, somehow, I think because of Isaiah's cryptic language, this meaning got flipped. And so it's, it's very common in the church to approach the parables as if you know, they're riddles that have to be figured out. Well, they're not. I'll, I'll tell you what the parables are all about right now. They're all about repentance. It's all about repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And repent and, and uh, do it now because it's going to be too late later. That's basically it. <laughs> you know, if you understand that, you pretty much apply that, you'll get any parable. They're really not. They're not that confusing, especially if you're familiar with rabbinic uh parables. You see what's happened, just as we were confused when we read that passage in Isaiah said, like, but is Isaiah going out to like deafen these people and blind these people harden their hearts? Conventional interpretation has been confused about the way that Yeshua quotes it and says thinks that Yeshua was going out to deafen people, blind people, and harden their hearts. That's the opposite of what his mission was. His his mission was to try to bring Israel to repentance as fast as possible because the kingdom was hand. let's go look at another use of this john 12 that was near the beginning of his ministry john 12 is going to be near the end in fact it's at the end of his ministry his teaching ministry i should say his teaching ministry well i'm going to read in verse 35 so this is a public statement he's making a public statement it's a few days before his uh suffering for a little while longer the light is among you walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you he who walks in darkness does not know where he goes while you have the light believe in the light so that you may, so that you may become sons of the light these things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them and so now we're going to get a little summary statement from the gospel later We'll come to the end of his show as public teaching minister. He's going to give a little summary statement on how it went for the last three years. though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to, fill, to fulfill the willard of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke and this is from Isaiah 53 so we'll have to come back here. Lord, who has believed our report, and to has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I would heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. The quotation has changed a little bit, as John uses it. So John John's actually chose the wording in the quotation little Not only does he make a summary statement on Yeshua's ministry, he makes a summary statement on Isaiah's ministry, which is brilliant. He says, regarding Isaiah, he says, Isaiah said this kind of stuff because he saw his glory and he spoke of him, speaking of Yeshua. He's saying, Isaiah saw the ministerial glory and he was talking about the master. Now notice how the quotation has changed a little bit. You now have a subject. Rather than these passive statements uh, of the subject, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I would heal them. According to John's use of the passage, obviously used a little differently than it was used in Matthew, John's use of the passage is speaking of the divine cunning. At least God is the actor here. And this is an idea that developed later, uh, among the apostles, but remember, John is the last of the New Testament books. To explain why it was that the nation did not accept Yeshua as the Messiah, why that hadn't, why Daniel had no Well, everything's in Hashem's hands. This must have been Hashem's plan. This must be, and so Paul will use this kind of language frequently, right? Of a blindness that has been temporarily imposed on israel not not in regard to the all spirituality but in just in regard to the identity of the messiah and paul even brings it further he says this is in order that the fullness of the gentiles should cut he has the whole plan, this whole eschatology worked out why it was necessary and we see the same thing we see this when we study torah we see the same thing in regard to joseph and how Joseph's identity was concealed from his brothers for the sake of the salvation of the nation, for the sake of the salvation of the whole family. Right. So this is what's happening here. The apostles kind of picked that theme up, and so John's able to. You know, he's he's reflecting back now. John's writing, he's writing the book of John some 60 years later, as as he puts his thoughts together here. I'll show you one more one more instance, and this is from Acts, and then we'll be done. Same effect, same. Same, using uh, the passage in the same way as John over in the book, the end of the book of Acts. And I refer to this as Paul's disappointment. I'll just set up the story very quickly. Paul was arrested, as you know. But it took a little, and, and he knew that he was going to Rome because the Holy Spirit told him, you're going to go to Rome. And so he knew he was going to go to Rome. He even appealed to go to Rome. And he had this vision of, that he was going to be teaching a little, preaching and teaching in Rome. He's very excited about the work in Rome, and the potential. The whole book of Romans he wrote to people he never met. You know, he gets, he, he sent the epistle of the Romans to Romans that he did everything. He was eager to get to Rome. He said, I'm coming. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm on my way there. Well, he got a little sidetracked, a little waylaid, a little arrested, held in prison for a couple of years, shipwrecked, finally makes it to Rome. It's, what comes in Nero's Rome, and he's just treated with kid gloves. He's, He's uh, absolutely, they give him a house to live in, you know. He's a prisoner, but he's got his own house to live in right there in the capital. They give him, well, he's got soldiers with him and that sort of thing, but he's a very posh situation for uh-huh. him. And he's able to assemble the Jewish community around him, because here he is, an important political prisoner from Judea, you know, that's been. Uh-huh. And so he's able to assemble the Jewish community. They want to know what, you know, what's where they should stand on this and. They should come to his defense. And he has this opportunity to, to give them the gospel. This is what he's been waiting for. So he just takes it. He unleashes the gospel. And he's teaching the Jewish community. The Jewish community in Rome is huge. It's the fourth largest in the world at the time. So it's, it's, it's a huge Jewish quarter and everything. So these are the leaders of the Jewish community. They come. And I'm reading in verse 23. When they had set a day for fall, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Yeshua, both from the Torah of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And some of them were being persuaded by things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. This is Paul's parting shot. (laughs) He says, The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in return, and I I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known. To you, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will also listen. He's saying to the Roman community. Yeah. I think people take this as, oh, and that was the end of the Jews, and from then on it was the Gentile Christians. But that's not what Paul's saying. Uh, Paul's saying to the he's saying to the Roman community, I'm not going to try to teach you anymore. From now on, I will speak to the Gentiles in this city. We know from his epistle to Philippians and so forth. He has a very successful ministry, even among Caesar's household, it says, which is impressive. That's Nero's household, servants in Nero's household. How did Paul use the passage? He used the passage to say, well, this is just like, I'm like Isaiah, and you're just like the people in the days of Isaiah who wouldn't listen to Isaiah. Just like Hashem said through Isaiah, this people will keep on listening to what we're saying. That's how Paul is using the passage. Let's think about this. Yeshua used the passage, it's almost the exact same way. John used the passage to say, see, this is, this is what was going to happen. Paul uses the passage. And when Yeshua uses, uses the, the passage, and, and when Paul uses the passage, it's before the destruction of the temple. When John uses the passage, it's after the destruction of the temple. So John uses the passage after the exile has already begun. He knows Paul and Yeshua are using it, saying, if you would listen to it. Isaiah's message is one of Shuvah, repentance, saying, we're in great danger. What happened, what, what's happening up in the north with the Assyrians could happen here. We could be next. We could be carried into exile just like, just like the, the house of Israel in the north. The exile is, is right in front of us. We need to repair it. That's Isaiah's message. But the people will not listen. They won't hear. And that's what we're seeing here. So it's this, this is why Hashem said, Isaiah says to him, how long, O Lord, will the people not listen? Because until everything is destroyed. It's the exact same thing that Yeshua was is trying to prevent. He's the prophet trying to stop the exile, trying to stop the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the Jewish people in the first century. And this is what Paul is trying to prevent and say, you know what, you have an option here. We could repent and we could receive the kingdom now and now know who the king is. But if you don't, we're headed for judgment. So this is how the passage is extremely pertinent.